Welcome to Refactor This, sponsored by vFunction. In each episode, we talk application modernization tools, concepts, and advice with industry experts. My name is Oliver White, and joining me today on Refactor This is Tim Berglund. Tim is a Java One rock star, conference speaker, trainer, and author, among much else, having spent many years leading developer relations at companies like Datastax and Confluent. Now VP of Developer Relations at StarTree, founded by the creators of Apache Pino, Tim's latest foray goes into the realm of fun, creative, high production value videos for developers. Tim, it's great to see you, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to see you, Oliver. Thanks for having me on the show. This is great. Yeah, it's great to see you. I wanted to congratulate you and, and the Star Tree team on your recent funding round. So exciting times. Yes, very exciting. It's it's pretty cool to raise a healthy round in the current environment for posterity. If you're listening years from now, things are kind of crappy right now. But absolutely, strong round and positions us to grow aggressively in a season when not everybody's able to. And so that's that's a happy thing. From uh, your introduction, is there anything else you'd like to add? <laughs> what did I miss? No. Um, grandpa of two? I don't know that you meant. A grandpa of two? Yes. yes. We're, we and all just, enjoy seeing your, your grandkids. On, on Twitter. I'll get some content out later this morning. I um, just got to see both of them. The cousins got to hang out on Saturday. It was great. The 15-month-old was looked looked like he was doing jujitsu on the five-month-old. He was like the sprawl thing and like wow. his head. It was cute. Yeah, I, I think they both had a good time. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So we're here talking about application modernization, what to do with aging systems, and in many cases, developer relations too, and how that plays a role. Let's start with developer relations, I guess. You know, you've been doing this a long time. What keeps you excited about that perspective? Well, I think I've said if you were to put me in a crucible and boil away, you know, everything extraneous, what would be the substance you would have less left? And that's maybe a little bit of a of a, of a gruesome analogy really, but you know, conceptually, like a conceptual crucible and then remove all of the non-essential things. I think you have a teacher left. Like that's what I kind of default to that sort of teaching motion. And that is, I take kind of an educational focus on developer relations. I want to help developers learn how to succeed with new things, learn how to use new things that their jobs are calling upon them to do. And like, we'll we'll talk about application modernization, but if you look at what I had done in the Kafka community and at Confluent for four or five years, Kafka is this big thing. It's exploding. Everybody needs to learn it. It's scary. It's this brand new way of doing things. And I love developer relations because now I get to, in this asymmetric way, enter into the life, the lives of developers and help them be less scared and less worried and able to do this new thing that they need to do. Because it's hard when paradigms change, right? And there's this new technology that is demanding that you use it, basically. And I like being able to make that easier. And adopting a new technology is in a sense very modernization focused because what you're adopting is hopefully you're adopting a mechanism or a tool set that will improve the status quo. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to work with technologies that that are uh, not lost to human flourishing. That sounds like a bad plan. Yeah. And every, everybody thinks that they're improving the status quo, but I definitely, yeah, when there's, there's a, a 
a consensus in the community that, hey, we're going to do this thing and this is going to help us build systems that are better in the dimension that we're currently focused on maximizing, then yeah, that's a good thing. So what have you kind of heard most when introducing new concepts, new paradigms, technologies, et cetera? What have you, what sort of, um, let's say, pushback have you come across when it comes to large aging systems or developers that are working with, you know, the dreaded monolith from yesteryear? And they are concerned that, let's say, maybe something like the technical debt of their application is preventing them from adopting new technologies. Okay. Okay. That's a different direction than I thought that you were taking the question. I, let me, and let me just give a little color because most people want to move to the new thing. Most developers, most of us are eager to move to the new thing, even to a fault, right? We, we like the new shiny. There is always kind of a five to 10% minority that wants to be kind of countercultural about that and say, well, no, why, why do we need to do this monolith works fine? You know, and, and that's that's a good voice to honor because you need that pushback to make sure that we're not really just pursuing shiny new things, but things that have value. So you you need to have that that contrary voice in the conversation that's that's drawing you, pulling you back to the old thing, sort of a technological conservatism as as a part of the mix which is what I thought you were going to ask. And now I've lost track of <laughs> the question you actually asked was, what do, what do, what are concerns that people have in moving to the new thing? Yeah. Uh, some, some stories, for example, yeah, uh, it's just, or, or horror story of, uh, yeah, it's just a, a basic. So when it comes to the transition to event driven architecture, and that's, that's where I've been for the last few years, in a sense, I still am, you know, we'll talk about Star Tree and Pino. This paradigm shift is happening, and I think it's a it's a generational paradigm shift. I make the case. I say this as often as anyone will listen. Client server was the last real architectural idea. The web caused a lot of disruption. You know, pushed on things and found where things didn't scale. It was a new network architecture. It brought user interfaces back twenty years in time for a little while. You know, it, the web and the web did all kinds of wonderful things, but fundamentally, it was they were client server systems that we were building, right? And that revolution happened in the 1980s. I was in high school when people were writing articles about client server. And now we've got this event-driven architecture or event-driven revolution happening that is supplanting that or is the new, you know, the, the new way that we build systems. And it just doesn't look anything like the old way. So the big problem is just a question, how do I do this? Right? We were all trained in this. There's a database and there's a program and it asks questions and it puts things there and it gets them back out. Like I get how to do that. And, you know, if you were writing code in 1992, you were doing that in Visual Basic uh, to some crappy departmental database. And if you're doing it in 2002, it was a browser, you know, and, and that all changed. But the basic ideas didn't. And now, wow, it's totally different. And so your, you know, your lens of application modernization, it's the same thing happening. It's, I always like to go as far as I can into this conversation before I use the M word, but it's people turning monoliths, the other M word into microservices, right? That's, that is what we are talking about. And it's one question, and this is kind of what you guys are all about. How do I break this thing down into pieces? And that's fine. Like you can do that, but then how do I actually build an event-driven system? And people stare at that problem and they're like, all right, well, here's this thing that I would very much know how to do if I just had a dang database but I know that won't scale. And I know that that pushes me in the direction of a monolith and that won't help me manage complexity over time. And 
development teams can't think about it. It, it takes too long to deploy and it's just too high friction and like all the, the monolith problems. How do I do that with events? I mean, it, it's just this kind of staring at this blank whiteboard in terror because uh, nobody's built one. And so that's the conversation that particularly pre-pandemic, I loved being able to sit in rooms with enterprise architects at whatever big organization and say, well, okay, here's this problem. Let's do this. You know, Here's a topic. Here's a service. Here's where we're going to accumulate state to look at. And you know, all of the, the regular, the, the anti-patterns like uh, people want request response paradigms all over the, because that's another thing that we're, we're really kind of conditioned to say, I need this and then wait for you to tell me that it's done. Uh, so synchronous, get your mind out synchronous communication, more or synchronous less. thinking and sort of micromanaging of the other services in the system. I need to make sure you did the thing I asked you to do. Mm-hmm. These are the patterns that kind of all over the map here in, in answering the question. But those those are the kinds of things that come to the table as difficulties in making that transition. So let me just try to unpack uh, that excellent description. A lot of people think that modernizing might mean just get your stuff into the cloud as, as best you can. Sure. Um, we've seen the challenges with deploying a monolith into the cloud where the benefits that people were expecting are not really coming to fruition. In terms of an event-driven architecture, would you say that that might be one of the prerequisites in terms of understanding for fully modernizing? I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I realize that's an opinionated statement, but... You're allowed. <laughs> I, I'm, the, I'm the one being interviewed, so 100%. There are different lenses you can take on this, and we can all be telling a, a true story about kind of the same states of affairs and, and be taking it from a different angle. but. Like someone might take a container approach, someone might take a cloud approach, someone might talk only about microservices, and I'm back here saying it's not going to work without events. And in a sense, the man, like what, 2006, 2007, somebody check me, EC2 is released, right? S3 had come out the year before, and you're like, wow, storage in the cloud. And there had been kind of managed servers before that, but now there's an API and there's this story about how, you know, during the holidays, you can ramp up your number of servers. And then in January, you can ramp them back down and, and true, right? Also, were you building systems like that in 2006 that could do that? I don't think you were, you know, the monoliths I was writing didn't do that. And so we, we gradually start to deliver on that promise with all these little pieces. A few years later, people start talking about microservices and we have all these kind of crappy ways of integrating microservices for a few years. And now finally, event-driven architecture arrives on the scene in, in full. And someone will always well actually me about how event-driven architecture is an old idea. I know, but again, it just wasn't happening in any kind of volume. Now that it is, I think that story we told coming up on 20 years ago about how the cloud was going to work, now the cloud can actually work that way. And there, there, there might be other ways to do it. There might be synchronously coupled microservices where you can get away with that longer discussion that I think is probably going to end up as an evolutionary dead end. And so, yes, I think events are finally paying the promissory note that the cloud had presented us 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. After this is over, I'm going to do some thinking about that. That's a long time. Yeah. You're going to have to ch- do some date checks, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Not just update checks, just maybe staring at the the, the horizon for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I want to um, 
change pace a little bit and, and talk about what you think of when you hear the term technical debt. It's becoming a loaded term for certain people. I think there's an understanding of what it means, but what have you seen as the implications of technical debt in an organization that's looking to modernize or adopt new paradigms and frameworks and so on? Have you run into that problem? Um, yeah, it's always there. And the thing I see people do the most often is build a new thing with a new paradigm, which is kind of not application modernization. It's, it's you know, we want to develop some expertise with this new thing and enjoy some success with it and learn and prove, you know, to some layer of management that there should be more investment in, in this paradigm and, and, you know, maybe greater commitment to a vendor or whatever that, you know, whatever that extra tier of investment is. And so you, you build a new thing. And we saw this, if you talk to an old timer, I was writing firmware in the early nineties. I wasn't doing databases, but you know, a fellow old timer who was doing corporate IT type stuff in the early nineties when relational databases were in late eighties, when they were elbowing mainframes out of the way, people built new stuff. They didn't, they didn't burn down the mainframes. It just doesn't happen. So the way, unfortunately, I see technical debt get dealt with is, and, and this is just my interface to the whole, to the whole thing is I'm there when we're doing the new thing. And so like the technical debt is over here and we're going to build this and we're going we're gonna to worry about this later. Now, then there's actual modernization where technical debt just means to me, at least as I see it, it's inflexible. It's built on old tools, old frameworks, old version of the JDK. The deployment process looks like something from 2004. All of those things are broken and it's not clear how to take that thing and fix any of that. You have all these interlocking problems that create this thing that just needs to be redone. And that, you know, that modernization story obviously is one that, that, you know, certainly you tell in a compelling way. Yeah. And, um, well, one thing that came out from the um, CIO.com annual survey is that application modernization of existing workloads, let's say, has jumped from number eight to a number three priority in just the last year. Okay. You mentioned the pandemic. It's kind of hard not to not to look at things through the lens of what we've experienced there. But when you were describing, let's try a new paradigm, a new design concept, new tool, it seems like during the, the pandemic, the, the greenfield or the budgets or, or comfort of going after greenfield solutions seems to have uh, dissipated a little bit. And instead, companies are looking after what they've got and how to make yeah. it better. And I think you just described that nicely, how application modernization is is not just rewriting something with the, the new and shiny. Right. I have a theory why that's true. Also, it, it I mean, oh. we had we had decently economic, good economic growth during the pandemic. I think to everybody's surprise after that first quarter, it was like, oh, okay, I guess we're all right. Do you mean we as we as a as a company or we as uh, a as a as a people? Devel developing world, yeah, <laughs> uh -huh. as a developed world was you know the sort of the, the G one countries. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't it wasn't like it is now. You know there was this surprisingly good season of economic activity. So it wasn't that everything was dying; it was that everything was changing, and the way businesses had to operate given pandemic restrictions was suddenly very different. 
And that had impacts on the computer programs that run the businesses. And I think my hypothesis is that business leaders saw, oh, those things were hard to change. Like we we had to change our business processes for curbside pickup or something, you know. And now there's software that doesn't quite do that and needs to change. And it, it's real hard and slow to change the the programs that run the business. And so I think that's a wake up call and a sort of a wound that this generation of executives are going to bear, and they're they're not going to let that old stuff hang around anymore. Yeah, I see some logic in your theory. <laughs> so StarTree, you know, popped onto the scene relatively recently, and I would say Apache Pino as well. Let's talk a little bit about what Apache Pino is. Does it help enterprises modernize their systems to any degree or how, rather, how does that uh, help yeah. people modernize? Let's go there. Yes, in two ways. So first of all, StarTree is a couple years old, came out of stealth a little more than a year ago at the time of this recording. It was August, 2021 that uh, we came out of stealth. I wasn't part of the company then, but I'll say we now. Pino is a few years old. Pino, it comes from LinkedIn. It's a, another uh, Apache Software Foundation project extracted from data infrastructure that was developed at LinkedIn. Second company in a row of mine for doing that. Uh, Apache Kafka, Kafka and Confluent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I guess I guess I have a type, you know. Um, <laughs> and the company before that was another Apache data infrastructure project. No, no association with LinkedIn. So anyway, yes. So how does it how does it aid in the modernization story? Two ways. Number one, uh, let's suppose you're making this transition to event driven architecture. You've done it. You're there, right? And you've got these reactive microservices and they're these little things that are easy to think about and change and you could deploy them orthogonally to one another and you're living the dream, right? <laughs> um, that is actually good. And that's the, that's the go forward architecture. As I say, there are people right now who are learning to eat and put their own clothes on who in 30 years will be building systems with that same paradigm. And, <laughs> and it'll be old then and maybe it'll be being pushed out by something that we, you and I, won't see. It's the new um, client server paradigm. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. We'll circle around. Seems to be simpler. Let's just have probably, but you know, <laughs> it's this generational paradigm. Let's say you're winning with that. You're doing that. You're building things that way. The stack has gotten so shaken up now that you've got this little slice of code up here. That's like definitely your differentiated application code. This is stuff that serves your customers and, and competes and, you know, is, is you. And here's Kafka down at the bottom. This is this event substrate. And you got some layers on top of Kafka, things like Kafka streams that you might use if you're a Java shop to understand what has been going on. Potentially, that's a thing that you could do. You could like materialize state in a table from a stream or from a topic. Confluence got KSQL DB. That's like a SQL version of Kafka streams, you know. In the middle, so here's my differentiated code. Here's my substrate. The stuff a database used to do, there's there's all these ways of doing that. You can build it yourself with Kafka Stream, with KSQL DB. That'll work some of the time. You can simply stand up a database and, and Kafka connect stuff into the database and, and use that database. The point is, you do need a view of state of what's true, what has been true. And you also need to understand what has been happening. And that second question is fundamentally the, the OLAP question. That's an analytics question. And all of the existing analytics stuff that's exploded in the last 15 years, the Hadoop and its its ancestors kind of culminating in, in Snowflake now. I mean, obviously, those will ingest stuff from Kafka all day long. But there isn't a standard piece of infrastructure that, that you can kind of connect to Kafka that lets you ask what's been true in the stream. Hmm. 
everybody's got a different solution. Everybody is at this point kind of cobbling something together because the stack has been shaken up and that stuff is not resolved. And so from this differentiated application code at the top here, developers are having to, to code too far down into the stack to build stuff that should be a, a component. It should be infrastructure. And one of the ways to think about Pinot is, look, it's, it's that. So ingest your streams and ask questions with queries. Don't build that. You know, you don't, you know, there are, this is not like an anti Kafka streams argument. I would never make one because it's the right thing for so many things, but don't build a database with Kafka streams. You're not that you're, you're, you're trying to serve customers. You're trying to live up here, you know? So that's potentially bigger thing. Like a, you got Kafka, you need, but really why Pino exists, why Pino is Pino and not something else is because it is intended to serve analytics queries at the interaction layer in user interfaces. That's why it was created at LinkedIn. So all of the existing analytics technology was all built around kind of a 5, 10, 15 second query latency across some enormous set of data. And uh, that was great and revolutionary, but that doesn't work for UIs. You're going to have to cache it. And there's only so much caching <laughs> you can or should or should want to if, uh, absent you know desire for self-harm. Uh, deploy in design into your architecture. So Pino is this component that will allow you to deploy or allow you to serve analytics to users and burying the lead here. But this is a huge paradigm shift. It's happening with meal delivery. It's happening with LinkedIn. It's happening with retailers mm. exposing the state of the business, not just in a dashboard to a decision maker or in the old days, a printed report to a decision maker with nice clothes in a corner office, but literally in the app itself. So there are analytics queries that are exposing the state of the business to me as an external person to the organization, as a user. Now I'm a decision maker too. And that's that's kind of the, the subtle conceptual paradigm shift that Pino is, is a part of. And you need a new class of infrastructure to do that. None of the old stuff did that, does that. The old stuff will remain serving dashboards. Pino will pick up serving users. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll ask a tricky question, perhaps. Um, do you need to have adopted an event-driven architecture to be able to use Pino? Not strictly speaking. Mm -hmm. Realistically, I don't think you're probably going to want to. I mean, technologically, you can have a data lake. You have you know some petabytes of Parquet files in S3, and we can ingest that and serve real-time queries. And it, 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 is, it is not insane to think that that use case could exist. But that's going to be a marginal use case. I think most of the drive for Pino is going to come from people who are somewhere fairly far along in their event-driven adoption. So, and if you look at when Pino was born relative to when Kafka was born, you got this like four or five-year delay. Mm. You probably have that. So you have this Kafka wave, and Pino is a few years behind it because that need becomes. First of all, you realize, oh crap, I need to ask questions about the stream. Yeah, I don't want to build that. And second of all, you realize, oh, wait, everybody else who's got this event-driven real-time thing, you know, the other really early adopter innovators are modeling meal delivery and social media and retail and these things by serving analytics to their users. How do I do that? You know, so that need, you're just not going to think that until you're pretty mature in your event-driven adoption. So practically speaking, yes. Technically speaking, no. But that's, I think, where the 
the success of the, the open source tool and the success of the Star Tree, the business comes from, you know, an event driven world. Gotcha. On this podcast, we talk a lot about modernization through refactoring or re-architecting the business logic of an application, which I think equates nicely to the, the early principles of an event-driven architecture. But the data layer is its own animal in a way. What gets tricky about modernizing past, let's say, microservices or the strangler fig pattern, you know, when you're decomposing a monolith, Let's talk a little bit about what gets tricky with messaging paradigms, databases, and mm -hmm. you know the general data layer. It is precisely that data doesn't want to decompose the way functions do. And mm. <laughs> it's, it's funny, I'm talking to the V-function guy. And I, normally when I'm talking about this, I'm like, well, you know, monoliths can be functionally decomposed easily. And you're like, well, uh, it's actually kind of hard. Um, and, <laughs> and it is, but... It's, you know, one can functionally decompose a monolith, maybe with some super cool AI tooling and static analysis of code. Uh, what about the data? No, sorry. The data is not going to play with you. The data will not decompose that way. It will be shared between modules. And that is, that's precisely where it gets, well, I feel bad saying hard because like you're solving a hard problem, but you know, you thought your hard problem is solved. Now, now the data is like, well, no, I'm not going to play with you. I will be shared between services. And so that gets scary when we've got mutable data stores that are the system of record, right? And that was the initial kind of 2011 microservices implementation was just, well, here's the database and let's just have services share it. And, you know, like in Oregon Trail, you know, you have died. You have died of microservices. You have died of database-based integration. And so getting the data to cooperate or figuring out a way to share data I think is precisely the problem in the data layer. And so the transition from there's a mutable update in place data store that is my system of record to there is an immutable event log that is my system of record. And I materialize views of that as I need them that, you know, I propose that as a way to solve that problem. And so now I can, and this isn't even really a Pino use case necessarily because Pino is, is, wants to be more on the OLAP side. But thinking transactionally, if I just need a transactional lookup of records, I can materialize those views and all the services that need the data if I've got the system of record in an immutable event log, say a Kafka topic. You know, then I can use Kafka streams, KSQL DB, Postgres, whatever, to, to make that local view that is derived from an immutable event stream. And so I've got basically a safe way to share that data. So I think it's, it's, it's the data layer where things fall apart if you don't have a good story. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, something similar to the strangler fig pattern for business logic or application code for the data layer? That's a good question. No, I mean, I, I, at least I, not that I know of, because I, I always, in working through this problem with folks, which again, for me, is at the whiteboard level, right? Like I'm trying to get the ideas out and work through how do we do this architecturally? And I'm, I'm, I'm it's just not my job to be there delivering it now. These are usually like customers of my employer I'm talking to. So right. <laughs> it has to work or, or they churn and everybody's mad. So it's not like there's no accountability in it, but I'm, I'm just there on the front end personally. And the, the data kind of tends to go along with the strangler fig pattern. You know, you're, you're chiseling these pieces off of the monolith and eventually, sorry, sorry, here's a, here's a tool. Change data capture would be 
I guess, the buzzword that you'd want in this. If you are strangler figging pieces of monolith into microservices, then at the beginning of that process, there still is a transactional database that is the system of record. And you'll want to use some change data capture tool to get that into events that your services can then feed on. And at some point, it just dies with when, when you fully strangle the, the monolith and it withers on the vine, then that transactional database can do the same thing if you've, if you've gone the whole way. So the, the microservice, the newly decoupled microservice needs to be able to have a source to pull data from rather yeah, than and, having and all something sent to it. Is yeah. There's this event stream and I'm feeding mm -hmm. on this event stream. It, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't know that there, that event stream is being produced to by Debezium that is reading the log of the Postgres database. That's the monolith's transactional database. But you know, it, it, it just knows there's a topic. And so when the time comes to shut off Debezium because there's a service actually producing those records, then you're good. Good. Thank you for that. Was a that was a hard question. I realize. Uh, that, thank you for. Uh, I, I kind of had to me. think through it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I didn't. I never said this was going to be easy. You know. No, you didn't. And I demand. I demand only you know as much heat as you can give. The final thing I wanted to talk about is um, how does remote employment these days play a role in, well, generally keeping a company sustainable, but namely during difficult projects, such as an application mm -hmm. modernization project, how does remote employment change the game a little bit? Yeah. I've been a remote employee for more than 20 years, basically mm -hmm. since I had broadband in my home. Mm. And that's just kind of how it worked out for me. So it's almost all I've ever known. It's most of what I've ever known. And it's not so much an option anymore. You know, this is another pandemic shift. There were certain geographies, cough, cough, Silicon Valley, again, companies I work for are located there, but they had this opinion that, you know, product and engineering and marketing, and they all have to be here because this is where everything really happens. And that's done, right? We, we, we can't live that way anymore. So if you want to actually be able to hire people, you need to be able to manage remote teams. And so I guess it's just how it's done now. And I haven't changed my Certainly, view on this at all. I feel like you've, you've had to evolve yourself in the last two decades of working remotely. So maybe if, for example, you, you may have been receiving faxes at one point. <laughs> I uh, definitely had a fax <laughs> modem 20 years ago. It didn't send a lot or receive a lot back then, but it, it happened. Yeah. And wow, I, I kind of want to get a fax modem and make a, like a little, a little wall hanging of it back here. Anyway, I would like to receive a fax, to be honest. Yeah, I know. Just kind of for old that times. Sounds, sounds kind of endearing. I bought a fax machine like 1995 and I just felt <laughs> good. But I believe so the being, same thing being, I've always being believed an, about remote work. Yeah. Be, I, being an old hand at remote work, do you have any career advice for yes. junior developers that are that are starting off in this very exciting yeah. realm? It's not either or. Okay. It's not that you always have to be in one place or you never have to be in one place. Uh, the reality of remote work for what it is that we do, I run a DevRel organization, you know, I, we build software, all of those things. You can do that from your house. All right. But you also need to see each other in person. So embodied presence, this is not a philosophical anthropology podcast, so I'll keep it short, but <laughs> um, we are creatures that are embodied. Mm -hmm. We are not information streams. We are not 
you know, Gnostic shades floating in the platonic heavens. Uh, <laughs> we actually have bodies and the physical co-location of those bodies is a significant thing. This is a hypothesis and, you know, we'll never really know, but whatever advanced holographic, super cool telepresence thing we have centuries hence, you know, my prediction is embodied presence is a different thing and everybody will always know it. So in other words, you have to get your team together, do it once a quarter. And the rest of the time in terms of like, you know, life hacks for working at home, you know, I got a great YouTube video on how to set up your camera and your lighting. It's a terrible idea. You shouldn't, you shouldn't watch it, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to add that into a, the show notes. Okay. Please, yeah. Everybody's got a different story on that, a different living situation. And it's mm -hmm. hard to give general advice for that. True. Yeah. Well, Tim, it has really been a pleasure talking with you today. I hope we can meet again in person sometime soon. And for our listeners who would like a little bit of fun at the end, let's now go to the lightning round. Let's ready? do it. Mm -hmm. I'm ready. I'm ready. Here's a tough one. Yeah. Is open source software going to survive in the long run? Yes. The cloud has certainly changed what open source means in two ways. Number one, a license matters a little less. Uh, I'm probably just going to subscribe to a cloud service. So if it's important infrastructure, it might be easier to make that adoption decision if I know there is some open source thing I can run on my own. And so I'm tied to you, but it doesn't really matter. It's a cloud service. So it matters less. However, I think it will remain. I think licenses are going to evolve. We're already seeing that. We saw that happen in 2018. We saw Mongo, Redis, Elastic, Confluent at the very end of the year and at the beginning of 2019 and big tempest in a teapot. Now nobody cares. So the consensus that emerged 20 years ago about what open source means when the tablets were handed down from the mountain and received by the open source initiative. I think it's how that went. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, no, actually it didn't. Some people made some stuff up that was working at the time and we might have to make some new stuff up about what we need mean by that because that's a longer discussion. I'd love to have that top discussion sometime. Yes, but it's going to change. All right. What's the last song you listened to? I can't remember. Wow. Uh, you know what? This is a terrible lightning round. I'm going to look at uh, Spotify. <laughs> um, I'm not in love by 10CC from the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. Nice. We can call this a, a rolling thunder round. <laughs> there you go. What do you do to stay healthy, Tim? I um, try to eat a generally lowish carb diet. I'm not incredibly disciplined about that, but you know it works a little bit. And I work out two or three times a week. I've got a, at my apartment complex, there's a gym and I, it's a crappy apartment complex gym and I travel a lot. So I'm able to do most of my workout routine uh, with just body weight exercises, which is important if you travel. And I also do Krav Maga when I'm home twice a week, which is a great workout and a pretty cool self-defense system. If by self-defense, you mean just punching people in the face a lot. It's a yeah. it's kind of a brutal, the martial art, that's more martial than art. <laughs> Well, minus some of the carbs, what is one of your favorite comfort foods? Burger and fries, honestly. Mm. Yeah, I do sweet potato fries, so it's like a, a slower carb, and they taste better, in my opinion. But that's that's it. That's the Tim comfort food. I'm essentially American. <laughs> I, I regret nothing. Well, this might inform my next question. What is one of your favorite movies? Uh, top favorite movie is called The Tree of Life, uh, directed by, written and directed by Terrence Malik. Malik. Hmm. and uh, director of photography, Emmanuel Lubuski, greatest living DP cinematographer in the world. 
Brad Pitt, Sean Penn, uh, Jessica Chastain. Amazing, amazing movie. Very polarizing. A lot of people hate it. They don't understand it. Mm. But everything you need to know about the movie is in the, the title card quote, the beginning of the movie. The question that the film is answering is, is presented to you in words. And you just have to listen to the auteur, the director, the writer, trying to, trying to give you his answer. Absolutely beautiful film. And I think one of the most... One of the most important questions a human beings face, uh, a, a deep mm. and, and I think reliable answer that he gives. Well, I will add it to my list. Finally, if we could bring back the T-Rex with cloning, would you vote yes or no to do it? I unfortunately would vote yes. I think that's probably bad and probably <laughs> in tension with other core principles that I would affirm, but I like to discover things. So, mm. All right. Well, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. See you later. Yeah. Thanks. All this.